my job really in writing the book was to capture the story pretty much as I found it and just do justice to it. It's the story of the boys in the boat. Author Daniel James Brown talks about his best-selling book that details the fascinating journey of nine young rowers from the University of Washington who found glory at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. I think a lot of the success of the book, um, really, you know, I, I owe it to these, these guys and what they did. What they did was beat the world's best rowing teams, win an Olympic gold medal, embarrass Nazi Germany's propaganda machine, and... This bunch of kids who wound up going to the Olympics and representing the United States in 1936 really did put Seattle on the map in a very significant way for a lot of the country for the first time. Author Daniel James Brown and the boys in the boat, I'm Enrique Cerna, and this is Conversations. Daniel James Brown, welcome to Conversations. Really good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Oh, you know, this book, um, well, number one, it's tremendous. Oh, thank uh, you. And the story is really tremendous. Yeah, you know, I like. I often tell people I was very blessed. This was a, this was a good story when I first heard it, and um, my job really in writing the book was to capture the story pretty much as I found it and just do justice to it and to these nine young men who accomplished this amazing thing in 1936. So um, so as I say, I, I think the underlying story was very good and, and I, I did my best to capture it. And uh, I think a lot of the success of the book, um, really, you know, I, I owe it to these, these guys and what they did. Right. Let's talk about um, Joe Rance. Yeah. Now, I, I think the fact is is that this book probably wouldn't have happened if you had not met him. Yeah. Can you tell me how that came about? Yeah. So, gosh, it must have been about eight years ago now. My neighbor, uh, Judy, came to me. And I hardly, I hardly knew Judy. Um, but she came to me, and she said that her father uh, was um, living at her house under hospice care. It was in the last couple of months of his life. Uh, he'd been reading one of my earlier books, and, and he wanted to meet me. And so she asked if I'd come down to her house to meet her dad. And I think it was, I think it was the next day I went down, and I met this elderly gentleman named Joe Rance. And I sat down next to Joe, and we talked just very briefly about that other book. And then Judy began to steer the conversation towards her dad's life. Um, and towards his upbringing. And, um, you know, if you've read the book, you know, he had this very, very hard family situation to overcome as a child. A really difficult life. A really difficult life. And then uh, Judy steered the conversation towards her dad's um, time rowing at the University of Washington and how he and his crewmates had wound up going to Berlin in 1936 and rowing for a gold medal against a German boat in front of Adolf Hitler. And, you know, I think I literally think my jaw dropped as I was listening to this story. It was just such an amazing story in and of itself. And the other thing is that as Joe was telling me this story, he was tearing up a lot. And so I knew right away that there was a lot of heart in this story. And there was 
more to it even than I was hearing on that first telling. So, you know, I got very curious and very, very interested. So I was hooked right from the beginning. What I didn't know that first day was that Judy had been looking for several years for somebody to write her, <laughs> to write her dad's story, and I had just moved into the neighborhood, and I had published a couple books, and so uh, she had she had laid a little bit of a trap, but right. it was a very fortunate trap, for I think, for everybody concerned. Yeah. So Judy was working it. <laughs> yeah, she was. <laughs> you know, um, what I, yeah, you had your central character. Yeah, right, right from the beginning. And he had everything in it. Yeah, you know, I mean, part of... Uh, People sometimes ask me why I focused the book on Joe as opposed to one of the other of these nine young men. And uh, partly it was just a practical matter. I had a lot more material on Joe than on the others. Um, and so I think he was going to be at the center of the story for, for that reason. But more than that, his story of the things he overcame in his life was particularly gripping and particularly, I think, emblematic of what so many people in that generation went through, the kinds of things they had to overcome. Uh, Joe really was uh, representative, in my mind, of, of, of that whole generation. All of them were, all these guys were to some extent, but Joe's story was particularly, um, as I say, compelling, but also particularly, I think, apt in terms of standing for for what that generation did. It, very much what Tom Brokaw, Tom Brokaw had called the greatest generation. Exactly. He represented that. Right. You were talking about the 30s. We're talking about the uh, Depression era. Uh, we're talking about a young man whose father basically let him, put him on his own yeah. uh, because the, his marriage was suffering because his stepmother, Joe's stepmother, didn't like him. Yeah. She just flat out didn't like him. And I get asked a lot why Thula, Joe's stepmother, was so nasty to him, really. And, of course, I don't. I don't know. And I always like to acknowledge that Thula died long ago and isn't here to give us her side of the story. But um, so people ask me, why was she so nasty to Joe? And, and I don't really have an answer. But I think partly it was that Joe was a reminder of his father's previous marriage, for one thing. And also, Joe was another mouth to feed in a family that at the time had very, very scant resources. And she had her own small children she was trying to feed. So it's a complex thing. Um, but for whatever reason, his stepmother repeatedly threw him out of the house, and he wound up living entirely on his own as an adolescent out in Squim. And uh, and then life really got hard for him. Eventually, Joe, through all these ordeals, uh, makes it to Seattle and yeah. to the University of Washington mm -hmm. with actually the help of a brother. Yes. Yes, his brother, uh, Joe was living alone out in Squim, and he was just barely surviving. He was poaching salmon out of the Dungeness and... Um, working at odd jobs and doing whatever, foraging in the woods for food um, and barely making it. His brother in Seattle uh, finally reached out to him and he wanted Joe to come into Seattle and graduate from Roosevelt High because Roosevelt was an accredited high school. And at the time, Squim High wasn't. And uh, his brother figured that if Joe could come into Seattle and live with, 
with the, with them for a while and graduate from Roosevelt, maybe he'd have a shot at going to the university. And that's exactly what happened. Um, he did he did spend that that year at Roosevelt, and um, while he was uh, at Roosevelt, where he was very popular and very successful as a student, um, Al Ulbrichsen, the rowing coach at Washington came by the high school one day, as he often did. He prowled the high schools looking for tall, strong kids for his rowing program uh, at UW. And, uh, and Al Albrechtson was there one day, and he spotted Joe in the gym. Jim, uh, Joe was into gymnastics at the time. And uh, he, spotted, he spotted Joe and uh, extended the invitation to come down to the Shell House uh, the following fall and try out for crew. And that's how, that's how Joe wound up doing that. Joe fit the profile because he was a big guy, yeah, tall, yeah, rangy, strong, yeah, which you needed to be yeah. to be a rower. Yeah, you really did. I mean, and to this day, height helps a lot in rowing. Simply be, if for no other reason than you get have much or much more leverage with the oar if you're tall. So he was big and tall, but you know, if you look picture of Joe. I look at pictures of Joe and and all of these guys. Um, they were tall, but they were also skinny. Um, it was the Depression, and they were having a hard time feeding themselves. And so, in all these pictures, you can see their ribs. They um, once they got on crew, they were burning a lot more calories than they were taking in on any given day. Uh, but yeah, he he was the right physical type. Let's talk about uh, Al Albrechtson because he. Um is very much a central character as well. Yeah. He had a lot of central characters in this. Yeah. Um, but tell me about him, because he, he had a certain demeanor yeah. and style <laughs> about him. So the thing about Al Albrechtson was um, he wasn't that much older than the boys he was coaching. I don't remember his age exactly in 1933, but he was maybe seven or eight years older than these young men that he was coaching. And so partly in order to um, make clear who the boss was, uh, Al Albrechtson was very stern with, with these guys. And he dressed, he dressed very natalie. He dressed in a three-piece suit and a fedora and a tie when he was coaching. Uh, he, he wanted to convey a seriousness and authority. He was, um, he was a stern taskmaster. He... Um, he didn't like to betray his emotions. He was often called the Dower Dane or the man with the stone face. He, 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 didn't, um, he didn't emote a lot. And this, I think, was part of this persona that he put on in order to, to make clear that he, that he was the boss. And, um, but he was, very good, he was a very good coach, and he was very good in a particular way, which is that uh, he was very good at the sort of alchemy of mixing and matching uh, young men uh, and putting them in the boat in the right combinations to get good performance out of the boat. Rowing is interesting. Um, a rowing coach once told me that he would never just clone the strongest man or woman in one of his boats and have eight replicas of that individual and call that a good crew. It's really uh, much more complicated than that. You need different types. You need different physical types and different psychological types to make a successful boat. You need somebody to fire everybody up. You need somebody to sort of calm everybody down. You need big, 
really brawny people in the middle of the boat to provide the power. You need lightweight people up front to steer the, the bow of the boat uh, very carefully. And so, um, so there's this mixing, it's matching, this alchemy. And I think Al Ulbrichson's real strength as a coach was that he was very good at, 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 uh, at doing that, at finding the right combinations. In the coxswain? In the coxswain. Uh, by the time uh, these guys went to Berlin in 1936, the coxswain uh, of their boat was Bobby Mock. And Bob Mock was a really interesting guy. He was 5'7". Coxswains are always uh, short and slight, uh, so they aren't adding weight to the boat. But Bob Mock was an exceptionally smart kid. He went on to have a very, very successful uh, law uh, career here in Seattle. Um, but as a coxswain, he was really sort of the brains of the boat. And he was also very gutsy. Bobby Mock would make decisions on the fly out on the race course that sometimes occasionally would fly in the face of what he'd been told to do by Coach Ulbrichson. Um, but they always turned out to be the right decision. He really knew his crew. He really knew what he was doing. And he was not afraid to, um, to make a call on the fly and, and do what he thought he had to do. There were other interesting characters as well. Uh, tell me about George Pocock. Yeah. George Pocock, in, in many ways, may be the most interesting character, I think, in this story. Pocock was this British-born uh, boat builder. He grew up in, um, in England, apprenticed to his father, who was a boat builder, who built uh, racing shells for the boys at Eton College. And George was actually literally apprenticed to him. I've seen his apprenticeship papers. They look like something out of Dickens. Um, <laughs> but he grew up, uh, he grew up in uh, building boats, and he wound up coming um, to first to Vancouver, uh, B.C., and then um, was lured down to the University of Washington by Hiram Conabare, who was the coach at Washington at the time, um, to build boats for the Washington program. And he came to Seattle, and he set up shop here on the campus, and um, and he began to build these beautiful handcrafted wooden shells. And he got better and better and better at it as the years went on. And by the mid 1930s, every collegiate crew program in the country either had all Pocock shells or desperately wanted to have nothing but Pocock shells. They were, they were so state of the art. But the thing about Pocock is he wasn't just a master craftsman. He was also a very, very good oarsman. And um, he, over the course of many years, he taught not just these nine boys, but generations of young men, because at the time only young men were rowing at Washington. He taught generations of young men to approach their rowing the way he approached his craft of building uh, boats, to put their heart into it. He taught them that if they did that, they would make they would lift themselves up uh, even spiritually there was a spiritual dimension for pocock to both building boats and and rowing boats he really believed that uh, the closer you came to perfection the closer you were to the divine and so he instilled this spirit as i say almost spiritual in these in these boys and it worked it, i mean it motivated 
them to really be earnest about what they were doing, to take what they were doing very, very seriously and put their whole hearts into it. And so I think in many ways, Pocock was sort of the secret weapon of the, of the success of the UW crew program over a number of years. He, he was like the Yoda. He was a Yoda-like figure. He was, yeah. because of the way he spoke, yeah. the way yeah. he talked. And it wasn't just about, um, you know, the racing and the strategy. There was like life yeah. lessons. In there this. were all kinds of life lessons. And he took Joe uh, Rance very much under his wing, because Joe was kind of a lost soul when he showed up at Washington. You know, he had lived out there in Squim, on his own, and because he'd lived on his own, he'd learned to do everything his own way. And and that's really not what Crew's about. Crew is about fitting in and, and cooperating and doing everything for, for the good of the boat. And so people that are very, very individualistic uh, often don't make good oarsmen, in a, particularly in a four or an eight-man boat. And um, it was it was really... Pocock that taught Joe that he needed to learn to fit in, that he learned, uh, Joe, Joe would often try to row the boat across the line himself as if the whole effort depended only on him. And because of that, he'd often be out of sync with the rest of the crew. So Pocock was the one that sort of instilled in Joe this appreciation for, for working for the common good, for pulling together and the power of becoming part of something larger than yourself. Which is when you met him and you uh, you said you wanted to write uh, this story, yeah. he said, don't write about me, yeah. write about the boat, meaning right. write about the guys. Right, exactly. I asked Joe, I said, and I put it, that, that first day I met him, I just sort of blurred, I was so taken with the story, I just sort of blurred it out. I said, Joe, can I write a book about your life? And he immediately looked very sour and looked down and said, no. And my heart kind of sank. But then he looked up and he and he had tears in his eyes again. I remember this. And he sort of croaked out. He said, but, but you could write a book about the boat. And yeah, by the boat, of course, he meant what all of them had done together and really what all of them had become together, you know, that summer 75 years before in, in Berlin. That was what mattered to him was that it be about about what all of them had done together. Tom Bowles. Tom Bowles was the freshman coach and um, later on, went on and became a very successful head coach at, at Harvard for many, many, many years. Um, uh, Bowles was um, very intellectual. They often called him the professor. And um, he, he was the coach of these of Joe and most of the guys who wound up in the 36th boat only for their freshman year. He was much more communicative than Albrechtson. He, he wasn't nearly as stern or demanding as Albrechtson, but he was a great freshman coach. He really knew how to bring these boys along. And he knew by the end of that first year with these, these kids as freshmen, he knew that he was on to something really, really special. He then handed them off to Albrechtson and took on another batch of freshmen. But uh, he knew right from the beginning he had something special in this bunch. Let's move ahead here to, uh, you know, what Seattle was like 
at this time. Yeah. Because I think this is one thing that you did really well in the book. You give this sense of the environment here. Yeah. Um, it's the Depression era. It's tough times. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah. was, what was this city like at that time? Well, first of all, you have, it's hard to, to realize these days um, how little most of the country knew about Seattle in the 1930s. I mean, this was, Boeing was just getting going, the Boeing company. This was long, of course, before Microsoft or Starbucks or any of the things that we're known for in the rest of the country. It was really seen by most of the country as a kind of backwater. And during the Depression in particular, it was a pretty grim place, and the whole country was. But Seattle was hit very hard by the Depression. So it was a gray, gritty place that didn't have a real strong sense of identity and was, frankly, looked down upon by uh, particularly folks on the East Coast. Many of them literally didn't know where Seattle was on a map. And so part of what's really cool about this story is that this bunch of kids who wound up going to the Olympics and representing the United States in 1936 really did put Seattle on the map in a very significant way for a lot of the country for the first time. It really put a spotlight on, on this town out west, this sort of lumbering, fishing town, very working class, very gray, very gritty, without a tremendous sense of identity. Uh, it, it shone a light on Seattle, and, and, I, and that's, as I say, I think that's part of what's really cool about this story. Royal Brome. Yeah. Sports writer. Yeah. Royal Brome Way down by yeah. uh, the stadium, by Safeco Field and CenturyLink. A uh, longtime sports writer. I actually got a chance to meet him when I was a cub oh, really? reporter in this town. Yeah, yeah. he, he was uh, quite elderly at that time. But he saw an opportunity here, yeah. and as a sports writer, he wanted to use this right. opportunity with these young guys yeah. to put the city on the map. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the really neat things about Royal Brome is that he was a great sports writer. He wrote really great copy, I think. Right. But um, he also was very interested in promoting Seattle. And, and he saw, to his credit, even in their freshman year, he, he was always down at the Shell House checking out uh, the how the crews were coming along. And he spotted this bunch right away. And he took an interest in this particular bunch of kids right away. And he began to write about them even beginning in 1933 as something exceptional, something that might help put Seattle on the map. And so as that actually unfolded and 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 these guys did wind up um, winning the Olympic trials and, and going to Berlin, it was um, it was largely Royal Brome that uh, that created some of that excitement around around them, particularly here in Seattle, and really pulled the community together around what they, were doing and, and what they represented. A rivalry developed during the time that these young men were becoming quite a, mm -hmm. a rowing team. And it had to do with the, uh, a fellow named uh, Kai Ebright, um, who had gone to Cal. Actually, yeah. he'd been here. He was a coxswain at Washington yeah. and then wound up going down to uh, Cal uh, to become their head coach. Actually. 
Washington very much was afraid that Cal would would drop crew and that there wouldn't be a crew program in Berkeley. And then if that had happened, uh, UW wouldn't have had a major regional rival to sort of perpetuate this the sport. And so they very much encouraged Ebright to go down to um, to Berkeley and take this head coaching position, which he did. A few years later, I think a lot of folks in the Washington Shell House may have begun to regret that because Ebright turned out to be a very good coach and very successful. And Cal won the two previous national championships and then went twice to the Olympics and both times uh, brought uh, gold medals back to Berkeley, which is part of what motivated Al Ulbrichsen so much in 1936. Ulbrichsen really wanted not only to bring gold back to Seattle, but to make sure that Ebright didn't bring it back to Berkeley. <laughs> but Ebright also had a, kind of a feud going with George Pocock, right? Yeah, so the, Pocock and, and Kai got in a, a scuffle through correspondence. Uh, Pocock didn't just build boats for Washington. He built, uh, I think I said, he built boats for programs all across the country, including Cal, Washington's rival. And um, over a number of years, the folks at Cal got frustrated. Um, they started to believe that the boats they were being sent and the oars they were being sent were inferior to the ones that uh, Pocock was supplying to Washington and to other schools, which is flat out not true. Um, but they got this notion in their head that Pocock was sending them uh, rotten, you know, rotten products. And so Pocock and Ebright got into a male uh, kerfluffle that went on over uh, many, many months that got pretty, pretty nasty. Instead of emails and, today, they were sending each other Yeah, it letters. took a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for them to, to have this feud and, and going on. Right. Um, so let, let's move to one of the big races where they that came to a head here between these guys, and that was uh, this Poughkeepsie regatta, yeah. because that was uh, perhaps the biggest turning point. And the way you write this in the book, I, yeah. you do a very good <laughs> job of just giving this thing, um, this building it up and how they managed to pull it out. But tell me about this. So the national championship race every year, they called the IRA regatta, was held in Poughkeepsie, New York. And in 1936, the, the, the guys from Washington really needed to win that race, to, and they particularly needed to beat Cal in order to go on and, uh, and move on to um, uh, Berlin. And um, it, it was an exceptional race. And as I was writing the book, I really looked forward to writing about that particular race because I had read a lot about it, I knew a lot about it, and it was just such an amazing race. So I held it out to myself as a reward, as a reward, the writing of that scene. What happened was that um, Al Obrickson, uh told Bobby Mock, the coxswain, to race from behind. It's a long race. It's a four-mile race. Uh, he told Bobby Mock to race from behind, but under no circumstances to get more than about two lengths behind the leader, who they assumed would be California. And as Albrechtson was watching this race unfold from an observation train that was running parallel to the race course, by the third mile, he was extremely upset with Bobby Mock because Bobby Mock is holding the boat four lengths back 
coming into the final mile of the race. And Ulbrichsen just can't figure out. Mach is outright defying him at this point. He can't figure out why, uh, why Mach hasn't turned them, turned them loose. And then at the last possible moment, Bobby Mock leans into Don Hume, his stroke oar, and he screams, bring it up. And the boat just exploded forward. And in the last half mile of that race, uh, Washington just blew past the whole field, including California, and won by open water, which was just extraordinary uh, given the length from which they had had to come back. And it, it was just, it's one of the great crew races, I think, of all time. And it was sure fun to write about. Was there film of this at all? Uh, there is, I have not seen any film of that race. Uh, there may be some in the archives back east. I couldn't find any film of that particular one. But the way you wrote this, it, it, it has that film quality to it. Well, you know, in this dynamism of how it all came about. Yeah, I was really helped in writing all, all these race sequences by the fact that rowing was covered as a major sport um, in great detail in the 1930s. And so it wasn't just Royal Brougham here in Washington. All the major sports writers in the East would go to Poughkeepsie, for instance. Right. It was a big East Coast It thing. was a huge thing, yeah. And every major sports writer in the country would be at Poughkeepsie for this, for this race. And so um, they would write for days in advance of the race, they would write about this coxswain has a sore throat and this coach is thinking about doing this. And, and then the, ra- the descriptions of the races were so very, very colorful that I had a huge amount of great source material to work with. Let's go to Berlin. Yeah. The team makes it there. Um, they actually, didn't they have to do some fundraising to get there yeah. because there was uh, yeah. some controversy about that and uh, was it the, the Pennsylvania team that said hey they, they don't have the money we'll go in their yeah, place the sec- uh, at the actual um, qualifying races for the uh, Olympic entry into the Olympics um, Washington won it quite handily but Pennsylvania came in second and shortly after the race um Henry Penn Burke, who was both from Pennsylvania and also an Olympic official, came to Al Ulbrichs and, and said, well, congratulations on winning the right to go to Berlin, but um, I hope you know your boys have to pay their own way to Berlin. And Ulbrichsen didn't know any such thing, and these guys didn't have two nickels to rub together. They didn't have the money to go to Berlin. So that night, phones started ringing back here in Seattle. Ulbrichsen and Royal Brougham and George Pocock started making calls back to Seattle. And um, and phones rang late into the night, and by the next morning, steering committees had been formed. And by that afternoon, there were hundreds of citizens out on street corners selling little paper badges for 50 cents apiece. And in 48 hours, they raised $5,000, and they wired it east, and these good, the guys were good to go to, to Berlin. Wow. Depression era uh, GoFundMe. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was That's pretty right. cool. That's exactly right. What was this time like? I mean, it's this era where Hitler is building this, uh, what will be the Nazi era. Yeah. And yet he, and he wants to show off Berlin in 36. Right, very much. So that is the backdrop. Yeah, I mean... um, the Nazis very, uh, 
carefully cultivated an image that they wanted to create uh, surrounding the 1936 uh, Olympics. And so they literally hand-swept the streets in Berlin. They removed all the anti-Semitic newspapers from street corners. They rounded up homeless people and Roma and other people that they considered objectionable and put them into camps from which they never emerged. And they, they created, they transformed Berlin into almost a movie set on which they could create this idealized version of German civilization. And they had the filmmaker to do and it. And then they had Lenny Riefenstahl, a, a great filmmaker, uh, document all of this and, and produce these huge propaganda slash documentaries. And so that, you know, that was the context in which this happened. What they didn't show was that at the very time that these games were getting underway, they were beginning to construct Dachau. Um, there was, all the darkness was there, but it was concealed from the world. And now, frankly, it worked. Uh, the hundreds of thousands of Americans that went to Berlin uh, that summer mostly came home back to the United States thinking Germany was a clean, well-run, efficient, modern, uh, even progressive uh, European state. So it was a huge propaganda coup for them. They were good at PR. They were very good. In a at, dark way. They were very good at PR. And this was also a time that was just scary in so many ways. The Depression was really, you know, in one of its darkest, deepest phases. And the Nazis were, although the world couldn't see a lot of it, the Nazis were beginning to mobilize for what they knew was coming in terms of a world war. It was a very dark and, uh, and, and scary time. And I think, I think that's also part of the appeal of the story is that these guys gave uh, sort of a breath of fresh air. They gave people something positive to cheer about. They represented American values in a very clear and uh, a way that contrasted with what was happening in Germany. Take me to the day of the race. So the day of the race, the races were held in a place called Grunau, which is southeast of Berlin, maybe 20 miles or so from downtown Berlin, um, on a body of water called the Longer Sea. And it was a windy uh, day, and it was raining on and off. And, um, and that was a big problem for the Americans, because although uh, the American boat had turned in the fastest qualifying time, and the British boat had turned in the fastest, the second fastest qualifying time. They were mysteriously assigned lanes five and six out in the windiest part of the race course. The German and the Italian boats, the two fascist states, were had turned in slow qualifying times, but they were mysteriously rewarded with the two best lanes, lanes one and two, which were protected from the wind pretty much the whole length of the race course. So it was a rainy day. The wind was a real concern out in lanes five and six. Well, Al Albrechtson was also very concerned because Don Hume, his stroke or stroke is the guy that sits right in front of the coxswain, sets the rhythm for the whole boat. Absolutely critical. Don Hume, the American stroke, uh, had been ill on and off for weeks with some kind of respiratory infection. And 
And the day of the race, woke up with a high fever, and 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 Elbrickson wasn't even going to put him in the boat. He only put him in the boat in the last minute because the other guys insisted that Don be allowed to row. And um, so these guys arrived at the race course. It's rainy. Don Hume is or it's windy, and Don Hume is is ill. And there's about seventy five thousand fans there, mostly German. There are Americans and Europeans there. They when uh, when they get there, Adolf Hitler and Hermann Goering and Joseph Goebbels and all the top Nazis arrive at the regatta grounds and go up on a balcony and the crowd begins to chant, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil. Germany promptly wins the first five gold medals in rowing that day, leading up to the Adord race, which is the prestige event. So the German crowd gets more and more excited. The Nazi leadership up on the balcony of this boathouse gets more and more excited. These guys finally paddle out to the starting line uh, for their race. The crowd is now chanting Deutschland, Deutschland, Deutschland. They line up to, to race. And <laughs> On top of everything else that's gone wrong so far that morning, when the start of the race is called, because they are out in the windiest part of the course, they don't hear the start of the race. They don't know the race has started till the boats to one side of them lurch forward. So they dig hard. They row out into the middle of the longer sea. But a thousand meters down the race course, halfway through the the race, they and the Brits are tied for dead last. Bobby Mock is the only guy facing forward in the boat. He's sitting uh, in the stern of the boat, watching waves break over the bow of the Husky Clipper, watching Germany and Italy streak down lanes one and two toward what seemed to be inevitable gold medal and silver medal finishes. But that's not how it ends, of course. And it's really the second half of that race just sends chills down my spine when I think about it, when I when I was reading about it, when I saw the Riefenstahl film of the finish, because again, as they did in Poughkeepsie, they came from almost an impossible situation. They somehow found it in themselves to turn the tables, and they wound up winning by six-tenths of a second. There is a, there's video of this. Yeah. Film footage, actually. Yeah. Um, but there's also still photos of it, and you can see <laughs> just by a hair yeah. how they managed to pull it off. The Italian boat, the German boat, and the American boat all cl- all crossed the, um, the finish line within the span of a single second. So it was, it was very, very close. When this happened, how did Adolf Hitler and the Nazi leadership... Respond. Well, you know, we don't have any film of it, so we can really only surmise. Uh, there is film of them before the eight Ord race. As I say, Germany had won five gold medals, and there's there's some old grainy footage of them up on this balcony slapping each other on the back. And as I recall, uh, Hitler sort of rocking back and forth, uh, and Hermann Goering is slapping him on the back, and... Joseph Goebbels is jumping up and down like a school kid. So they were very, very excited just before this happened. We don't have any footage. What we do know is that immediately after the race was finished, there were there was a minute or two where it wasn't clear who had won. But when the Americans were announced as the winners, the Nazi contingent just 
vanished from the balcony, to, went into the went into the boathouse, and and that's the last we saw of them. What did this mean to these young men, these nine young men, and also to the men who were their coaches, their leaders, that guided them, that saw something in them, right? That these guys are special. We've got we've got something good here. Yeah, you know, I think it meant the world to them. Uh, it was validation, of course, for all they'd been through. For Joe Rance, in particular, because he had had such a hard time fitting in, and uh, because he had been treated as disposable, you know, when he was growing up, it, it really was a kind of validation that that I belong, I matter, I've done something, I can be proud of. My country's proud of me. So all that's true, but what interests me most is that these guys, almost without exception, they came home later that summer back to Seattle, and they took their gold medals and they stuck them in sock drawers, and they closed their drawers, and they went out and tried to get a job to get through another year in school. And a lot of them hardly ever talked about that gold medal for the rest of their lives. These guys... Every one of them had an element of humility to him that I think actually think was part of what made them successful crew members. It's part of what allowed them to fit in with, with one another and pull together. But there was a conspicuous element of humility to all of them. Some of the people that worked with Joe at Boeing, Joe worked at Boeing for, for decades. And I am forever running into people out here in Seattle who worked with Joe at Boeing, you know, worked five desks down from Joe for 25 years. He never mentioned a gold medal. Hmm. It's kind of typical of, of all of them, actually. What did it mean to you to be able to find this story, yeah. uh, to write it, yeah. to have it become a New York Times bestseller? Yeah. Now it, uh, a movie's going to be made about it, Hollywood's... Uh, going to handle it, but also a documentary that is going to be on American Experience on PBS, Yeah, um, which we're very happy about. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> so am I. What does this mean for you, for you to you? You know, for me, it, I mean, it's it's been rewarding on so many levels, but I think one of the things that's most important is I think back to that first time that I met Joe and, and those tears in his eyes whenever he talked about the other boys in the boat. And as I say, I knew when I first saw those tears, I knew there was a lot of heart in this story, but I didn't know exactly what it was all about. I feel as if I do know now what it's about. And I, I feel, I hope, as if I've done justice to what they did and that, I've, um, that they, they're all gone now. None of them live to see the publication of the book, but I... I think and I hope that they would be happy about what's happened, uh, happy that their story's been told. And so, you know, I think the most rewarding thing for me is is that, that I, th I, think, I think it's a good thing their story's out there, that the world is appreciating it. As I say, they're not here to tell me whether they approve of it or not, but I, I do know the families of all nine of these guys have sort of been proxies for me for their father or grandfather, and they've all been wonderfully supportive and also wonderfully excited about how the book turned out. And so, so that all makes me very, very happy. I think also there's this, um, that thing about team mm -hmm. that 
when we live in a in an era in a society where it tends to be so much about an individual. Yeah. That uh, in a very very tough sport yeah. during a very difficult era, yeah. that these guys could come together and then succeed as a team. Yeah. Represented what America's all about. You know, and that's interesting because as I go around the country talking about this book, I am finding there is a huge hunger and appetite for this story about pulling together. Yeah. And it's coming from all sides. I get email from readers all the time, and I get emails from people on the left side of our po political spectrum and on the right side of our political spectrum saying, well, if only the other side would read this book, the world would be a much better place. But I actually think that's great because I think what it means is there's a common ground here. People really do want everybody to be pulling together. People are tired of the fractionalism and the factionalism and the, the constant emphasis of the self when really some of our greatest moments have been the times when we, as a country, pull together. And, and for me, this story of these nine kids that pulled together, it's almost perfect metaphor for, you know, what that generation did that Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation. They really, in very tough times, they got past most of their political uh, schisms and they learned to pull together. And and so for me, the story of these nine young men is, is a pretty good metaphor for what they did and a very affirmative one. The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and their epic quest for gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. The author is Daniel James Brown. It's a New York Times bestseller. And it is also going to be featured uh, under the title The Boys of 36 on American Experience on PBS. And uh, go to kcts9.org to find out more about this American Experience production. And Daniel James Brown, thank you so much for your time and the that, conversation. Oh, thanks for having me.